Welcome back to the Winter War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 11 and it's February 1940. The Russians are having another go at invading Finland and now they've learnt a few lessons. As you heard last episode, there'd been a build-up through late January. While Finland's political leaders had been desperately trying to start peace talks with the Soviet Union, Stalin had been fretting about reports that Britain and France were planning to send troops and materiel to help the Finns. The Stavka had rearranged the Russian forces in preparation for the new assault on the Mannerheim Line along the Karelian Isthmus, and that was planned to begin in the second week of February. A preliminary Soviet bombardment began on the morning of Sunday, the 11th of February. Then the Red Army troops each received a ration of 100 milliliters of vodka per man to fortify themselves before they began their advance at noon. The initial attacks by the Russians' 19th Rifle Corps in the east of the Isthmus were repelled by the Finns. Korolenko's 50th Corps managed to gain some ground, however. But the major achievement for the Russians on the 11th was the successful attack by the 123rd Rifle Division under Brigade Commander Philip Aljabushev, who pierced Colonel Pavel Paolo's 3rd Division lines east of Lake Suma. That was along the Ladi Road, a point of repeated attacks through this war. By 1300 hours, the Soviets had captured a major strategic point known as the Popius Bunker, as well as all strong points east of it, as you're going to hear shortly. Timoshenko's plan was working. He'd softened up the Finns since late January, escalating the bombardment and bombing runs from February 1st, so after 10 days of round-the-clock pounding, the cumulative effect had drained the Finns. There was one thing that remained unchanged, and that was the plodding Soviet approach. They were still willing to accept staggering losses to reach their objective, with the Red Army assembling in the open then approaching and finally charging in a full frontal assault during daylight hours. Whole battalions advanced in dense shoulder-to-shoulder lines, columns that cheered their way into the blizzard of Finnish machine guns. It was methodical. First powerful artillery and air bombardments, then a frontal infantry and tank assault, which were almost all repulsed, then repeat. Some battalions attacked up to five times in a single day with fresh Soviet troops thrown into each assault. By now, the Soviets were deploying 100 or more tanks per action, and the Finns only had a handful of Bofors guns to use against Russian armor, averaging around two per regiment. The Soviets had also figured out that they needed their infantry to advance with their armor, so it was no longer possible for Finnish anti-tank squads to move out towards the tanks. They'd be shot down by Red Army troops alongside the armoured divisions. In the days before the 11th of February, the Finns began to run out of ammunition in various sectors along the Isthmus. General Oquist ordered that the second corps guns should only be fired directly at Russian assaults. There were so few shells, they could not target the Soviets unless they were actually sighted. The Russians launched this renewed offensive in a wide front, stretching from the Taipali sector all the way west to the Gulf of Finland and for the first time the Russians attempted to outflank the Finns around the Gulf of Finland by marching in columns on the sea ice. Unfortunately for them, the Finnish coastal batteries spotted this flanking maneuver in the Kovisto sector, and their 6, 8 and 10-inch guns near Sarampa on Kovisto Island and Humaljoki on the mainland created havoc. 
The 6- and 8-inch guns fired anti-personnel shrapnel, which detonated in air bursts over the Soviet heads like demonic shotguns, while the larger 10-inch guns, which were armed with armor-piercing rounds, tore great holes in the thick ice. Hundreds of Soviet troops sank to their death in the Finnish Sea, while others who managed to swim to safety froze to death in minutes. The most important sector in the coming battle was going to be along the Lade Road, northeast of Suma, defended by men of the 2nd Battalion, codenamed JR-9. It was just before dawn on the 11th that this unit had rotated in and was only 40% of full strength, around 400 men. They were arraigned along a stretch of the Mannerheim line that was over a mile and a half long. Just to add a cruel twist of fate for the Finns, JR-9 included a battalion of Swedish-speaking Finns who were attached to a Finnish-speaking regiment. Finns are traditionally bilingual, but in the pressure cooker of the Russian escalation, its commander Lindman became almost catatonic. He appeared to be unable to communicate. The 2nd Battalion reportedly fought a leaderless battle, although some say that's a bit harsh on Lindman because the Finnish NCOs were the real centre of leadership, like they are in all proper armies. Finnish General Ockwist had been vocal about one of the weak points in his line before the war began, and this was the very spot where the Russians focused their assaults. Ochwist had built two large and imposing defensive positions which dominated this portion of the line. One was called the Million Dollar Bunker, and the other the Poppius Bunker. There were three other concrete pillboxes spread along between these two points, but they were 20 years old and shattered by the Russian artillery barrages. The Million Dollar Bunker had been built at a kink or a dog's leg in the line, where it turned sharply south, then twisted east. There was some geographical advantage. To the northwest lay a swamp, which meant the Russians would be funneled into any attack from the southeast. But the landscape here was gentle, lightly wooded, ideal for their armour. Its minefields had been churned up by the bombardments, and the wire entanglements had been snapped. There were large avenues opened up between them on the eve of this engagement. When the JR-9 battalion arrived early on the morning of the 11th of February, it was dark. They had no time to acclimatize because the Russian bombardment was going to begin before dawn. Timoshenko linked up his forces opposite the stretch of the Mannerheim line in the foggy dark. It was extremely cold, minus 22 degrees Celsius. The Russians had moved 18 divisions and five tank brigades into place along the entire Karelian Isthmus in preparation for this final big push. Timoshenko had ordered the artillery to be hand-dragged into place so that the Finns would not be alerted to the huge build-up. There would be no engine noise, and Timoshenko was also deploying his sharp-shooting artillery for the first time. These guns were sighted to pour flat trajectory fire into the Finnish bunkers. Timoshenko briefed his officers that these two strong points, the million-dollar bunker and the populous bunker, should be overcome in order for this assault to succeed. Less than a kilometre behind the Mannerheim line was the interim line. If Timoshenko's 123rd Division could punch through here, they would turn towards Suma and the Finns would have no choice but to retreat. The inevitable 100 milliliter vodka ration was handed out and by 8am the 123rd Division and the 35th Light Tank Brigade were ready to go. After an hour and a half of bombardment, the sharpshooter guns began peppering the Finnish concrete structures with unerring accuracy, tearing chunks out of the two main bunkers 
and shattering the steel reinforcing. Hunkering down opposite were the companies of JR9 broken into three sections. On the finish right, at the millionaire's bunker, was Lieutenant Ericsson. In the centre, covering the Popius and the Lardy Road itself, was Lieutenant Malmö's group, and on the left, dug in behind the Munosua swamp, were the men of Lieutenant Hanu's group. The Russian infantry began the assault at noon, with one entire regiment heading straight for Ericsson's millionaire's bunker, and a battalion with the support of two tank companies targeting the Popius bunker. Lieutenant Malmö's men there fought like tigers, and the first Russian assault on Popius collapsed after only 20 minutes. Then the Russians drove their tanks right up to the bunker itself, ignoring the machine gun rounds, and began blasting away at point-blank range into the bunker. The big problem for the Finns is that previously all they had to do was swing their Bofors guns into line and take out the tanks. But now the Russians were assaulting with both infantry and tanks. It was not possible to put the Bofors teams into their line of fire. And some of these AA guns had been damaged by the concussion of the massive Russian bombardments. They were out of action. The Finns were forced out of the populous bunker eventually and into trenches and strong points alongside. Then the Russians closed in for the kill. 200 Red Army soldiers died in a few minutes here, but they kept coming and by half past 12, the Soviet flag could be seen flying from Popius. Cheers went up on the Russian side. They had nothing to cheer about for weeks, so you can understand how significant it was for the men who'd suffered defeat after defeat at the hands of the Finns. Along the Finnish left flank, the Russians were trying to advance along the side of Munosuo Swamp, hiding in the reeds and creeping along the shallows. Section after section were gunned down here. The Russians gave the swampy area its new nickname, the Valley of Death. But the force of numbers was too great, and Lieutenant Hanu's men withdrew when they spotted dozens of T-28 tanks lumbering up behind them from the direction of the Lardy Road. This was the armour that had overcome Popius. At the millionaire's bunker, it was a different story. The Russians failed repeatedly to take this strong point on the 11th, Ericsson's men fighting off spirited advances all day. The Soviets actually made it into the Finnish trenches that night, and then they were polished off by grenades and Somi machine gun fire. Hand-to-hand fighting took place in what was a grim, no-holds-barred final battle as the Russians surrounded this bunker, with the Soviet commanders calling a halt to the fighting twice to offer terms of surrender to the Finns. This was rejected. At five the next morning, the 12th of February, Russian sappers placed a half-ton block of TNT on top of the main millionaire's bunker building. The huge blast that followed killed everyone inside. The concussion was so great, and left a 30-foot hole in the concrete roof. The Finns fighting outside the fortress still didn't give up, even though by now there were fewer than 50 left alive. Miraculously, a Finnish Bofor gun then began firing, knocking out four more Russian tanks before it jammed for good. At midday on the 12th, the Finnish survivors finally retreated to the interim line behind Lake Sumajavi. As night fell, the Russians managed to squeeze out a small salient through the Mannerheim line into the interim line. Then they halted. Their tanks were drawn up into a circle, guns facing outwards. Their lights were switched on, ready for any Finnish counter-attack. Once the Russians secured the ground, they broke out a few more bottles of vodka. But this gave the Finns some time to take a breath. By now, 
the Finnish High Command had realized the critical situation and immediately sent in the reserve troops of Colonel Isaacson's 5th Division, while the Soviets sent reinforcements of their own to further widen the gap in the Mannerheim line. Across the entire front, heavy fighting was reported on the 12th, and the Finns could not concentrate their reinforcements anywhere, leading to piecemeal deployments. However, other sectors managed to repulse the Soviets, including at Sumo itself, where the Red Army tried five times to overcome the defenders in vain. Russian commander Timoshenko took stock. He'd lost more than 1,200 men on the 12th alone, but as I've pointed out, his plan was to use his soldiers in the meat grinder, and the Finns did not have the luxury of being spent with the lives of their men. Timoshenko had told Stalin he'd take this job only on condition that he wouldn't be blamed for the high casualty rate, because his plan was to bombard the Finns with his own men's blood. The truth was Timoshenko could have lost 12,000 men on that day and still would have reserves. It was working. Marshal Mannerheim's regiment-sized fronts were being defended by skeleton battalions and he couldn't replace casualties. Still, Mannerheim knew it was critical to push the Russians back from the Lardy Road salient. Back to that in a moment. On the 12th of February, the Russians tried to take out the coastal guns in the Koivisto sector along the Gulf of Finland, and this time they had assistance from the weather. A thick coastal fog drifted over the battlefield, which covered the movement of two Red Army companies, who had sneaked across the ice and got to within 50 metres of the Finnish positions. It was then that a small security patrol spotted the companies and opened fire with small arms. The Russians dropped to the ice. Then the Finns called down their artillery using a field telephone. Only the six-inch guns could depress low enough to hit the Russians as they were so close. Then the fog began to lift. The Finnish guns were point-blank range and they didn't miss. Not a single Russian made it to the shore. Both companies were annihilated. Later that day the Russians tried again, this time sending a section of 76.2mm field guns onto the ice to bombard the Sarampa Finns, followed by 25 tanks, which was an attempt at overrunning the defences through pure power. However, the pure power at that moment seemed to come from the Finns. They coolly waited until the tanks were almost upon them, then set up their own blistering barrage, wiping out all 25 tanks, which either sunk in the broken ice or were left as burning hulks on top. Meanwhile, at the extreme eastern edge of this Karelian attack at Taipali, the Russians charged across the wide open expanse. They marched across Lake Ladoga in an attempt at outflanking the Finns from the east, but the defenders lined them up with their shore batteries here too, wiping out company after company. The next day, the 13th of February, the Finnish counterattack began at the Lardy Road bulge, with two battalions from Colonel Vaino Poltina's 14th Infantry Regiment hitting the salient from the Majajoki River Valley. Two other battalions launched support attacks, one at the head of the bulge and the other against its right close to the Munasua swamp. But these two support groups were pinned down by massive Russian artillery bombardment. That left only the two battalions of Colonel Vino Poltina's 14th Regiment, who attempted the impossible. They forged ahead in the teeth of an artillery bombardment that was biblical, but somehow managed to drive the Russians off the main hill north of Sumajavi Lake, while a couple of Finnish platoons actually crossed the Majajoki River Valley. But that's as far as they got. 
The Russian artillery spotters were in place on the bulge and called down accurate fire on the 14th Regiment, killing Colonel Poltina and then four successive battalion commanders one after the other before the Finns eventually retreated. At about the same time and at the head of the salient, the Russians were trying to blast their way through the interim line and mounted a ferocious armoured attack. More than two hours of vicious fighting took place along a small section of this line near an anti-tank ditch which had a palisade on its western side. The Russians blasted this log wall down. Eventually 50 Soviet tanks crashed through here and headed into the Finns' rear. Soon, the Finns' ancient howitzers were overrun. That wasn't serious, as they had already run out of ammunition. But a few hundred metres down the road, the Soviet armour overran Finnish 150mm guns. That was more serious. The Finns had no spare guns at all. The Russians were on the move and finally had dislodged the courageous Finnish defence. It's incredible to think that the Red Army invasion, which had begun on the 29th of November the previous year, had taken 10 weeks to pierce the Mannerheim line when Stalin had believed it would take more like 10 days or perhaps less. And then miraculously, the Soviets stopped. Military historians have spent a lot of time and ink trying to explain why, at this very moment, as they had the Finnish army in retreat, they halted. One of the most believable reasons is that the Russian commanders had been so severely slapped about by the Finns for more than two months that they couldn't believe the main road to their first target, Vipuri, was wide open. Near Taipali, Russian assaults reached a grim climax on February 14th, Valentine's Day, when in the space of around four hours, 2,500 Russian troops were killed as they rushed across the ice. Before that assault, 50,000 shells had been fired, a veritable hurricane of steel that had weakened the Finnish positions. The Finnish 2nd Division was taking heavy casualties, but fought on, particularly around the symbolic Muolai churchyard, and kept the attackers at bay through the 14th of February. There was a tense meeting of Finnish commanders that night, attended by Colonel Ochquist, General Ostermann, who was the overall commander of the Isthmus Defences, and Marshal Mannerheim. They argued about many things, but agreed on one. Since the Lardy Road bulge could not be eliminated, they'd have to adjust the entire Second Corps front. What happened next is for next episode. Please head off to the website desmondlatham.blog for more details about this and my other shows. Until next, Nakimin. Min.